0: Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week we explore how religion shapes our world, our politics, and our culture. June is Pride Month from neighborhood parades and block parties to events celebrating LGBTQ voices and stories, and that includes in many houses of worship. In the last five years, public attitudes, particularly among people of faith, have shifted dramatically, and that's led to changes in many faith-based organizations and denominations embracing inclusion and for many, that means draping that rainbow flag out front. But when did faith spaces become welcoming, especially the more conservative ones? That's one of the many questions religion reporter Michael O'Laughlin set out to answer. And he was taking a particular look at one tradition, his own, the Catholic Church. O'Laughlin's focus... The Response of the Catholic Church to the AIDS Crisis in the 1980s and 90s. His research and reporting is detailed in Hidden Mercy, AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear, which was published in November 2021. Later in the program, we'll hear the first episode of that podcast. But first, my conversation with O'Loughlin. Michael, what drew you to covering religion?
1: I sometimes joke that I'm a failed academic. So when I was in grad school studying theology, I thought I'd go on to a PhD, but I was drawn really to journalism because I enjoy telling stories about deeply meaningful moments in people's lives, uh, getting into the nitty gritty of questions of faith and mortality and what does it mean to be a human being and how do we relate to God and one another and being able to write about those stories, be given the opportunity to be with people and ask these kinds of questions and share those stories with the wider audience, it's been uh, really appealing to me.
0: So you did not grow up during the AIDS, age- like you don't have any memory of this.
1: Exactly. Uh, and I think we don't do a good job of teaching this history. Uh, so part of it was I felt kind of let down. that I didn't know any of this history, but part of it also was I needed to seek it out on my own. If I wanted to understand it, um, it was an important part of history that hasn't been widely captured by mainstream press or even uh, Catholic historians so that it was up to me to figure out what are the important lessons from this time. Really for me it was kind of complicating the conventional wisdom that you had LGBT activists on one side fighting for their lives and religious voices including Catholic leaders on the other side sort of undermining those voices. The reality proved to be much more complicated and much more interesting especially interviewing LGBT Catholics who found themselves kind of torn between the two communities. What happened? What was your experience like? What did you do? What did you see? Uh, How did you feel as your friends and partners were becoming sick and dying? Uh, Was the church there for you? Were there individuals who supported you? Those kinds of deep questions, allowing space and time for people to reflect on memories that they had forgotten about, that they had kind of buried away because they're so painful, that provided a rich uh, opportunity to think more critically about this time and mine lessons for People of faith today who maybe don't feel at home in their institutions.
0: You encountered lots of different voices. Um, In the podcast, you feature some of them. How did you make the choices about who to feature in the podcast?
1: There were so many interviews that I could have included because every person I interviewed had a compelling story, and they would then give me the names of three or four other people who also had compelling stories. But ultimately, because of time and space, I had to narrow down whose voices would be featured. Uh, It wasn't easy, but I thought that presenting a range of different experiences, different kinds of people who responded would be helpful to give a glimpse into this time. It's sort of just a snapshot of this time in history. So I wanted to make sure that I included priests who were engaged in HIV and AIDS ministry, uh, Catholic sisters who were working in hospitals, setting up AIDS clinics, uh, lay LGBT Catholics who were fighting for their place in the Catholic Church, also fighting for public health measures that could save their lives and the lives of their friends, Uh, people who stayed in the church and fought for change, people who walked away from the church because it wasn't a safe place for them to be. So there's a range of voices that I think give witness to the different kinds of experiences that people had at the time.
0: How, as a reporter, do you handle, you know, and treat engaging someone to tell you a story that involves a lot of trauma?
1: Uh, I tread lightly. Uh, So when I reach out to someone who has lived and worked and grieved through HIV and AIDS, I usually have to have several conversations, explain my own motivations for reporting, because I'm inviting them really to unlock stories that they maybe haven't told in several decades, uh, often because they haven't been asked to tell these stories. So on the one hand, they are grateful that someone is interested in hearing about their friends and loved ones who passed away in the 80s and 90s. On the other hand, it is very difficult. So it's generally a a series of conversations, establishing trust, uh, listening to the stories that they've told uh, maybe many times over the years, and then asking questions to get them to dig a little bit deeper to ask questions that prompt them to think about the events in a different way.
0: How did hearing all these stories affect you?
1: It was difficult in the reporting process. There's a lot of unresolved trauma, I think, both people who uh, were diagnosed with HIV and are still living with it, uh, people who lost friends and partners, uh, even caregivers who were thrown into this incredibly difficult time uh, doing ministry for seven, eight, nine years. uh, They were impacted by this. But I'll say, as I wrapped up the reporting and finished writing Hidden Mercy, it was a real... Blessing for me to have these uh, inspiring people be willing to share so much with me to trust me to tell their stories and then be able to share them with others who didn't know this history who now say they feel less alone as well. So it was um, heavy work. Uh, these are not light stories, even though there are moments of levity in. In plague and in the book people remembering times when they were able to escape some of the darkness for a little while but these are heavy stories and it was difficult at times to sit with that trauma but being able to then share them and see the light that they're bringing people today has been worth it
0: tell me about the reaction
1: so many people have reached out and thanked me for having the willingness to uh spend time with these stories because society in many ways has moved on um This isn't history. HIV and AIDS is still an ongoing crisis, but we haven't spent time in many ways reflecting back on the pain and trauma from that time.
0: Do you see these stories as offering a way for young people who might be struggling to recognize that their struggle might not be so unique?
1: Oh, very much so. Uh, For me, when I was dealing with these questions myself, uh, what does it mean to be a gay person in the Catholic Church? I felt like I was the only person ever to go through this. And of course, that's ridiculous now. Uh, I realize that. But at the time, uh, it felt very true because of that sense of isolation. And for me, what I've realized is that isolation came from not knowing this history, uh, not knowing the history of LGBT Catholics and their fight to make the church more welcoming, their fight for Their lives during HIV and AIDS. So I think we need to do a better job as a society of teaching LGBT history, but especially as people of faith, because these stories often are not passed down in faith communities. So I've seen firsthand young people come up to me and say that had they known some of this history, they would have felt less alone. Um, And that isolation can be An incredibly damaging place to be. So, I'm hoping that by sharing these stories and keeping this conversation going about this time in history, younger people won't have to feel that kind of isolation that I felt when I was dealing with these questions.
0: Did you have to explain or make the case of how you would approach this subject, you know, quote unquote, objectively as a journalist? How did you navigate that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And in Hidden Mercy, I do write a little bit about how when I began reporting full-time, uh, the country was in the middle of a debate over same-sex marriage. And I was fairly closeted at the time. And I was covering these issues that were, uh, important to the kind of the national dialogue, the national religious dialogue in this country. Uh, but also important to me personally, because I was struggling with these questions of what does it mean to be a gay person of faith today? Uh, so I did try to keep it very, uh, keep my identity very separate from my reporting, and I still do in many ways. But I was very upfront when I was reporting this story about HIV and AIDS in the Catholic Church that it was motivated by a personal desire to understand this dual identity that I have uh, in a more uh, satisfying way, that being able to connect with people to hear their experiences that I might learn something from. Uh, that was the motivation for why I was uh, undertaking these projects. I do bring something of my uh, own background and identity to my work, as everyone does, whether it's acknowledged or not.
0: Michael O'Laughlin is a national correspondent with the magazine America, a Jesuit Review. Coming up, we're gonna take a listen to the first episode of Plague, untold stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Hi friends, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Ambreen Khan. Before the break, my conversation with religion reporter Michael O'Laughlin. He's the author of Hidden Mercy and the host of a special limited-run podcast that takes a closer look at the untold stories of the AIDS epidemic and the Catholic Church. That was a traumatic period. O'Loughlin believes that the conventional wisdom and narratives from that time are overly simplistic, and perhaps even inaccurate, because they put activists on one side and the church on the other. And in doing so, erase the experiences of gay Catholics like David Pace. Let's take a listen.
2: My uh, my uh, journey with AIDS, the AIDS epidemic began on July fourth, nineteen eighty one. Very good friend of mine who lived across the hall from me in a small apartment building in Greenwich Village cut out a piece of uh, an article that was in the uh, New York Times and stuck it underneath my door, and. On a uh, post-it, he wrote, this is what Paul died from. I read the article, and three weeks later, my friend who was living across the hall w- was one of the first six people diagnosed in New York City uh, that I knew of.
1: Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. That was the title of the article that David Pace's neighbor shared with him. The article wasn't even a front-page story. It was a short piece buried deep on page 20. But it became kind of infamous in the gay community because it was the first news of what would eventually become a medical crisis, one that intensified as it grew worse over the following years, with no end in sight. Here's how ABC News put it at the time.
3: It's mysterious, it's deadly, and it's baffling medical science. Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome...
1: David is in his 70s, and like many gay men of his age, he has vivid memories of the early days of the AIDS epidemic. He remembers especially the agonizing end of his neighbor's life. From
2: July to November of 1981, I saw this young, vibrant 30-year-old man morph into the closest example of sainthood I had ever seen. He told his doctors that anybody newly diagnosed could call him at any hour of the day to just talk. And he would try to relieve their fears or anxieties.
1: David's friend died on November 1st that year. To David, who had been born and raised Catholic, the date was significant. It was All Saints Day. He vowed to do something about the epidemic. So he volunteered with a new group called Gay Men's Health Crisis he recalled that it was his Catholic faith that compelled him to act.
2: I felt like it was similar to Christ dealing with lepers and inviting them and including them and reaching out to them. And it was um, a very powerful uh, thing for me.
1: From America Media, I'm Michael O'Loughlin. This is Plague, untold stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church. I'm a journalist covering the Catholic Church in the United States. It's a big beat, and I've written about everything from Catholics attending climate change rallies to parishes responding to mass shootings to the Pope's use of Twitter. But in recent years, perhaps no other story has been as personal to me as to how the institutional church interacts with the LGBT community.
0: Another employee fired at a Catholic school for being in a same-sex marriage. A teachers union will not go to bat for a gay teacher fired from a Catholic high school. A
1: senior Vatican official came out today announcing publicly that he is gay.
4: It
0: was the Pope's comments on gays that has the world talking tonight. The Pope says the Catholic Church owes an apology to gay individuals and others who have been mistreated.
1: Like David, I'm also gay and Catholic. People often ask me how I reconcile these two parts of my identity. The truth is, for a long time, I didn't have a good answer. That's why I started seeking out people like David, who could tell me about their own experiences. Their stories are mine to inherit, and I want to share them. What I heard repeatedly is that the stories about Catholics during the height of the AIDS crisis need to be more well-known. That there are lessons for us today. There are names we should remember, and unless we make an effort to learn these stories, they might be lost to history. The more I listened, the more complicated the story became. That's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Take a look at this time and explore how the church responded when the LGBT community fell under siege. Let's get back to David. Like the dozens of other people I've interviewed for this podcast— He said conveying how truly frightening this time period was for the gay community is difficult to comprehend today, especially for people like me, who were too young to remember.
2: At that point in the epidemic, if you were diagnosed, it was a death sentence. It was overwhelmingly scary. Between 1981
1: and 1996, More than 300,000 Americans died from AIDS-related complications. That's equivalent to the entire population of Pittsburgh, cut down by a deadly disease. Entire apartment buildings were decimated. I'm not the first to make this observation, but the only image that seems to capture what was happening in the 80s and 90s is that of plague.
3: In five short years, according to the Public Health Service, AIDS could become one of the top ten causes of death in the United States. Right now, perhaps a million and a half Americans are carrying the AIDS virus. AIDS is striking home in America, striking home in ways scarcely imaginable a few years ago.
1: Young gay men were dying in large clusters from this mysterious disease. It wasn't just death that caused fear, the disease caused massive suffering. As one person put it to me, it turned people into frail walking skeletons. In the early 80s, the time David's describing, no one knew if it would be possible to treat AIDS. How many people were even contracting it? Or who might die next? 30 years later, we know you cannot be infected with HIV through a handshake or a hug or by drinking out of the same cup. It's only transmitted by certain body fluids. Now there's medication to prevent transmission as well as to manage the illness. Today in New York, for example... Transmissions are at an all time low. But in the 80s, all people knew was that their friends were disappearing. It's still not easy for survivors to talk about the horror they experienced. I met David in his office at the Gay Men's Health Crisis. It's one of the largest HIV and AIDS nonprofits in New York. The building is so big, it's easy to get lost. Across its 10 floors, It offers HIV testing, counseling, meals, a pharmacy, art classes, housing help, and more.
2: And we'll feed upwards of 400 people every day uh, in here.
1: David spoke to me just before he was set to leave for a six-week-long pilgrimage in Spain.
2: When I realized it was 500 miles, I figured, you better start going to the gym, David. (laughs) This confirmed couch potato has become a gym bunny. <laughs> <I'm>
1: <laughs> Gay men's health crisis is something of a public health juggernaut today. But David was involved long before the group even had a room to meet in.
2: I want that to be known that the first public education program that was ever held in Greenwich Village was held in a Catholic church. That's the beginning of the church's role as I know it.
1: It wasn't a church-sponsored event. Rather, David was a parishioner and the AIDS group needed a space to meet. So David first asked permission from the priests at St. Joe's in Greenwich Village to use the parish school. But so many people showed up, they couldn't fit. So the priests offered the church itself. Since the point of that meeting was to provide safe sex education in order to prevent the spread of HIV, this meant candid and often graphic questions and answers about sex.
2: It was raucous. People were not used to hearing the very honest and very direct statements coming from these community educators. As much as we knew about the epidemic at that point was, was offered.
1: One of the reasons David volunteered to educate people about AIDS was because he saw the effects of the mysterious disease up close. Can you tell me a little bit about your partner, Bill? Um, he was
2: a young man. He was originally from Long Island. Uh, when we met, he was living in Philadelphia. He was an accountant. Uh, and when he moved in, um, we were in love.
1: The same year David and Bill moved in together, gay men's health crisis was encouraging men to be tested for HIV. This recommendation was fairly controversial. Some men preferred simply not to know, as the suffering they saw among their friends and partners was just too much to bear. And any effective medication was still a decade off. But David felt he had a responsibility to be tested, especially since he was telling others to do the same. So, he and Bill had blood drawn.
2: When we both were diagnosed, uh he had something like 125 T cells. So, he actually had uh AIDS at that point. And I tested positive. And I don't know why it was a, it was but I knew that I had to put all my energy and focus into taking care of him and keeping him as healthy as possible. And then I figured later on, I'll worry about what's going on with me. So that's basically what I did.
1: HIV is particularly dangerous because it attacks your body's ability to heal itself. Normally, T-cells are what your body uses to fight infection. People diagnosed with HIV have to monitor their T-cell count because a reading below 200 T-cells means that HIV has led to AIDS. And once that happens, a person's immune system becomes so compromised that the body is unable to fight off common infections. So things like pneumonia can easily become lethal. Bill now had AIDS, and David knew he had HIV, the virus that can lead to AIDS. There's no simple explanation for why, but in just a couple of years, Bill's health deteriorated dramatically, but David's remained stable.
2: For the next two years, I i became the partner I had always hoped I would be. And Bill died in June of 1987. Um, I'm still processing that death. Um, I remember even as he was dying that I was so grateful for God bringing him into my life and God was never more tangible than my love and attention and service to Bill.
1: When Bill died, David turned to his faith, finding a home with Dignity New York. This was a group for gay men and women that held Mass each week inside a Catholic church called St. Francis' Savior. It offered a fellowship for a community still very much on the fringes. Like David, a lot of other group members had also lost partners and friends to AIDS. But in October 1986, church leaders in Rome issued a letter that led to the expulsion of groups like Dignity from churches all over the world, including David's group in New York.
2: When we were asked to leave this parish, I felt like I was being thrown out of my home and I had just lost my lover. So it was like a double whammy.
1: In addition to kicking out groups like Dignity, the Vatican letter also repeated church teaching that said homosexuality was, quote, ordered toward an intrinsic moral evil and that it is a, quote, objective disorder. The history of the letter is a little complicated, but it's important to understand in order to see why gay Catholics say they were so hurt by it. Here it goes. The Church had taught that homosexual acts were sinful, but simply being gay was not. But the Vatican in the 1980s was concerned that some Catholics were using that nuanced teaching to suggest that being gay might actually be a good thing. This didn't sit well with some church leaders in Rome, who felt they had to clarify the church's prohibition on homosexual acts again, this time in the 1986 letter. This letter now stressed that although homosexual orientation was not sinful in itself, an inclination toward homosexual acts could not be considered neutral or good. I told you it was complicated. Anyway, the timing of this letter, at the height of the AIDS crisis, felt especially cruel to many of the gay Catholics I interviewed. You can see why. Gay men are getting sick. Dying. To some, the letter felt like being kicked while they were already down. Plus, the letter seemed to blame gay men for the onslaught of AIDS. It
2: was always kind of a fear. Uh, You know, from childhood of... People discovering who you are and rejecting you. And it, that's what it felt like.
1: David felt his faith was baked into his identity. It motivated him to reach out to people with AIDS and to do what he could to ease their anxiety and fear. He said he compartmentalized his faith, embracing his local faith community while ignoring hurtful comments from some church leaders. But the Vatican's hard line on homosexuality had now affected him directly. He had lost his community. He said he had had enough and that he had to speak up. A lot of other gay Catholics felt the same. So Dignity organized a series of protests. They called it the Cathedral Project.
2: Generally what we would do is we would go to the cathedral. We would respectfully go in and sit in the pews and we would participate in Mass until the priest got up to deliver his homily, and then we would all stand up and turn our backs to the priest. I believe there were police in the back of the church. Usually the ushers would come up and wave us to the aisle and then walk us out, and the police were back there just to reinforce that, we shouldn't cause a disturbance.
1: David didn't want other Catholics to feel uncomfortable at Mass. He and his friends just wanted to be able to worship at their parish. They wanted an apology for the pain they felt.
2: I was acting as a witness to the refusal of the church to love all of its members equally. And we really didn't want to disrupt the Mass. At least I didn't want to disrupt the Mass. Because... For me, I respected why people were there. I just really wanted to say, we have a right to be here, too. We have a right to be welcomed into this house of God.
1: The protests went on for a few months, but they didn't seem to work. Dignity wasn't allowed back on church property. Eventually, several protesters were even arrested, including a priest and a person with AIDS. The effects of all this, losing dozens of friends to AIDS, the death of his partner, being shut out from his church, it was all too much for David. He decided he had to leave.
2: I distinctly
1: stepped away.
2: Uh, Bolted might be a better term. I can't spend all of my time and energy angry and fighting the church when uh, I have to use it for survival.
1: For David and other protesters, fighting the church meant calling attention to the Archbishop of New York, Cardinal John O'Connor. He was a former Navy admiral whom Pope John Paul II chose to lead the church in New York in 1984. I was
2: not a fan. Let me just put it that way.
1: O'Connor has been called the most powerful archbishop of his generation. He had the ears of political leaders. President Ronald Reagan even appointed him to the White House's AIDS Commission. O'Connor could influence debate about a wide range of issues. He spent a lot of time advocating for the poor and the homeless in New York. He spoke out against racism and anti-Semitism. He was a strong proponent of labor rights. But Davis said the gay community often felt like the Cardinal was targeting them. For example, O'Connor fought bills that would protect gay people from housing and job discrimination. And O'Connor was clear about the church's teaching on homosexuality.
3: Homosexual behavior behavior, not an inclination, homosexual behavior is illicit. That's the teaching of the Catholic Church. I am a Catholic bishop.
1: That's him on Charlie Rose. And here he is preaching on the topic, saying the church could not approve of civil rights for gay people.
3: Is the legal approval of homosexual conduct and activity something that the Catholic Church and indeed other religious faiths consider...
1: It's a little difficult to hear because he's inside a church. But O'Connor says, quote, the legal approval of homosexual conduct is, quote, morally wrong. We're going to come back to David in a minute. At this point, it's 1989. He's still volunteering with gay men's health crisis and tending to friends with AIDS. But he doesn't want anything to do with the church. Even protesting was getting too close to it for him. But other people continue to protest the cardinal, like members of the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, or Act Up.
5: This is in December 1989,
1: Act Up stormed New York St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's fair to say their tactics were more radical than dignity's.
5: This is Jesus Christ. I'm in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral on Sunday. Inside,
1: Cardinal O'Connor is busy spreading his lies and rumors about the position of lesbians and gays. We're here to say, we want to go to heaven too. There was overlap between the two groups, but there's a distinction. Dignity was trying to change the church from the inside. ACT UP was taking issue with the church's actions in the public square. ACT UP aimed its anger at many institutions, the federal government, Wall Street, pharmaceutical companies. Many of the activists believed the church was making the AIDS crisis worse by opposing safe sex education in public schools, condemning homosexuality, and fighting against rights for gays and lesbians. Michael Petrellis was one of those protesters. He lives in San Francisco now, and I spoke to him on the phone.
3: There was a lot of anger from... All of us activists inside that church and that epidemic, that plague, was greatly helped by the church and the church's interference in public health policies that kept condoms uh, from people who needed condoms. They, They hindered distribution of condoms and needles that would have stemmed the flow of the spread of
1: AIDS. ACT UP members were angry about a lot of things. They were angry that their friends were dying. They were terrified they might be next. They were angry about the homophobia and the abuse gay people saw in every sector of society. And as Michael says, ACT UP members were angry at Cardinal O'Connor because of his opposition to safe sex education and policies that would protect gay people from discrimination. That's why they decided to target St. Patrick's. As part of the protest, they made pamphlets that were designed to look like worship aids, which helped worshippers follow along during Mass. ...opportunity
0: for us to
5: get out our printed information in the form of a false St. Patrick's Cathedral program. We do not challenge anybody's right to worship, so that's right up front. But then it goes on basically with our... Basically...
1: The morning of the protest, thousands of people gathered near the cathedral. Some held placards with messages like, quote, condoms, not prayers, and, quote, Cardinal O'Connor won't teach safe sex. The NYPD stopped the obvious protesters from entering the cathedral, but Petrellas was dressed in his Sunday best. He skirted around officers and fellow ACT UP members and slipped into the cathedral from a side entrance. He chose a pew and waited for the mass to begin.
3: My recollection is that uh, Archbishop O'Connor began the service by mentioning that, you know, there were many protesters in their uh, service and that, that he was asking the congregation to uh, pray with him for a peaceful service. Well, a peaceful service did not happen.
1: A few minutes into the Cardinal's sermon, Members of ACT UP threw their bodies onto the cold, hard marble floor. But O'Connor continued preaching. Petrellis' anger was boiling over. He was afraid the action was failing, that it wasn't generating the right kind of attention. So he reached into his pocket, took out a whistle, put it between his lips, stood up on his pew, and blew as hard as he could. Later, during an unplanned part of the protest, as the congregation approached the altar for communion, another activist crumbled up the Eucharist, the body of Christ, and threw it to the ground. Stop
5: killing us! Stop killing us!
1: This act of sacrilege became the story in next morning's papers. The public seemed to have sided with the church. Even the protester who did it said years later that he probably wouldn't have thrown the host on the floor today because he didn't realize at the time how offensive it would be to Catholics. I asked David, who at this point had walked away from the church, what he made of it all.
2: I can't defend what they did in disrupting the Mass and in in treating the host in the way that they did treat it, but I could understand their anger. And their frustration. So I also thought that politically it was counterproductive.
1: Even within ACT UP, members were really conflicted about what had happened.
5: It brought up stuff for me I didn't even know was like lingering in the nooks and crannies of my brain and my soul.
1: This is Jerry Wells. On the one hand, she felt like the church was her enemy, on the other hand, it still felt like her church. This is her talking to an ACT UP oral history project in 2007.
5: They weren't. That wasn't my church. On some level, you know, even though I, I'm a Catholic and it is my church, so I, I had a lot of mixed feelings about it. My mother was.
1: Teaching Jerry's decision to protest hurt her family too, especially her mother. Who was Catholic? And
5: my mother saw it on Eyewitness News. You know, me being really radical, my black beret on. You know, singing, <laughs> si- screaming, silence equals death in St. Patrick's Cathedral. And she didn't talk to me for about two weeks. No. It was very painful. You know, um, she said, "I, I can't talk." She, Every channel I turned on, you were screaming in church. You know, and I, I don't know how to deal with this. You know, mm-hmm. she was honest. You know, and then. Two weeks later, she bought me a little um, Waterford Crystal Cathedral, of St. Patrick's Cathedral. And she says, um, you know, I understand why you did it.
1: Following the protests, the debate was framed as gay people versus the church. But this framing is not entirely correct. There were many gay Catholics protesting at the cathedral. People who fell under siege by the AIDS crisis and abandoned by their church. And even though it appeared O'Connor clashed constantly with New York's gay community, in private, his actions reveal an even more complicated story. This is him on Charlie Rose again.
3: I decided that I should come to understand firsthand what this really is. So I set myself a goal of visiting, washing the bed sores, of emptying the bedpans, of talking with a minimum of 1,000 persons with AIDS their families, or others. I got to 1,100. I learned a great deal. I tried my very best to help. Many of those were homosexual.
1: It turns out David and the Cardinal were both visiting AIDS patients at New York Catholic hospitals around the same time. A Catholic sister who worked with countless numbers of people with AIDS remembers O'Connor's visits.
4: Cardinal O'Connor did what he said he was going to do. He came and visited patients at St. Clair's. Some people thought it was wonderful. Some people criticized him for doing that.
1: That's Sister Pascal Conforti. She worked on the pastoral care team at St. Clair's Hospital in New York's Hell's Kitchen neighborhood. It was one of the first hospitals in the city to offer dedicated care for people with AIDS. David remembers Sister Pascal from his own activist days. He has glowing things to say about her. Sister Paschal told me during a visit to her retirement community just outside New York that the Cardinal visited patients away from the limelight.
4: I knew when he was coming in because the next morning, one of the patients would say, Oh, gee, this really swell priest was in. That was Cardinal O'Connor. say, because there you're not dealing with the hierarchy. What's the position? You know,
1: Sister Paschal is a well-known figure when it comes to AIDS care in New York. She visited countless patients, and she advocated for their best interests. One doctor told me a story about Sister Pascal. She had been the only person on staff who could get a patient who had been saving up for a sex change operation to open up about why he was resisting a placement of a life-saving chest catheter. The patient, who used male pronouns at the time, told Sister Pascal that he was afraid that the needle would harm the breast implants that he'd scrimped and saved for. Unlike the many doctors and nurses who couldn't get the patient to open up, Sister Paschal listened. She told the patient she understood. She then worked with the medical team to ensure the patient that his wishes would be respected. Sister Pascal was sensitive to the needs of her patients. She was comfortable around the LGBT community and became sort of an ally. But she still resists the image of O'Connor as a kind of villain that some in ACT UP tried to paint during this time. What did patients tell you about their visits with him? They loved
4: them. These are very sick people, Mike. I didn't say, well, what did you talk about? They just liked him. He was a priest, and he came to minister to them, and probably he blessed them. But none of them said, what's he doing here? Because it wasn't that kind of controversy.
1: Despite the fiery conflict playing out between the gay community and the church, there wasn't always a neat divide. That is, there were lots of gay Catholics still very much inside the church, or at least trying to find a place for themselves. That's something David grappled with. He was still angry at the Catholic Church, but the AIDS epidemic was raging, and he felt he needed spiritual support. He went to a friend, a priest in the Episcopal Church, another Christian denomination, for advice.
2: And I remember very specifically, he looked at me and he said, David, I can't recommend an Episcopal parish to you. You're hopelessly Catholic.
1: David's friend told him to go back to St. Francis Xavier, the same church that Dignity had been kicked out of back when David walked away from the church. Going back to that space to worship was an emotional challenge for him. So he hid at the back of the church, sitting near the doors, in case he felt he needed to leave. So, two
2: weeks later, on a very hot Sunday in August, I walk in for Mass, and I sit in the back of the last pew in the church, ready to bolt at the first homophobic thing I heard coming from the pulpit. And at the end of the Mass I was in tears uh, because I felt I had found a place where I could be who I was, I could offer all the gifts that I had been given, and I could be uh, an active participant in that faith
1: community. When I visited David's church, I was struck by his grand scale elaborate paintings of the Stations of the Cross, its colorful antique Tiffany window. But one of David's favorite details about his parish is at the front of the church. When the church was restored almost a decade ago, the kneelers were taken off the pews and fashioned into the altar. The kneelers on which David prayed when Bill was dying, when he grappled with his own HIV diagnosis, when he lost dozens of friends, those kneelers are now the centerpiece of the church.
2: And so now all those years of people's prayers is uh, congregated in the altar.
1: The story of AIDS in the United States cannot be separated from the Catholic Church. As David told us, the first meeting of gay men's health crisis actually took place inside a Catholic church. Many ACT UP members were raised Catholic, and there were lots of priests and nuns who put their own vocations on the line to minister to gay men and their partners. Catholic hospitals around the country were among the first to offer treatment to people with AIDS. This is all to say, there's a lot to learn from this time period. Nearly three decades later, we risk losing these stories if we don't capture them now. That's what I'm aiming to do with this podcast. I want to share the stories from the height of the AIDS crisis, both those that inspire and those that infuriate, so we can remember what happens when society turns its back on those in need. During the height of the AIDS crisis, tens of thousands of people, at first mostly gay men, became unbearably sick, unable to care for themselves. Many institutions and individuals turned their backs, but some people didn't. Even when they didn't know how HIV spread or how dangerous AIDS really was, part of the church responded to that gospel call to care for those who were sick. That's why it's been so moving to me to learn from David, whose own stories seem representative of so many others during this time.
2: I just want to say that there are some really incredible stories about active Catholics who were real heroes in the AIDS epidemic. Many of them were probably non-practicing Catholics by that stage of the game, but they had learned very intensely and closely the importance of social justice and gospel values.
0: Plague, the Untold Stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church is a production of America Media. This series was written and produced by Michael O'Laughlin and Della West Blonde Dio. The executive producer is Sebastian Gums. Archival audio was provided by the ACT UP Oral History. Jim Hubbard, and the Archdiocese of New York. For more about this episode and full show credits, visit americamag.org. That's all for this week's show. This week's producer was Kevin McCarthy. If you missed any portion, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. You can find our podcast and take it wherever you want to listen. Just search Interfaith Voices. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and the Sisters of Loretto. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, I'm Breen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.